Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is March the 30th, 2012. Today is a Friday, and it's episode 870, and that means this will be the last episode in March. Three months of 12 are gone. Quarter one of the year finished. 25% of the way through the world's ending year, right? Because we're all supposed to die on December 21st. I only we're going to die on December 21st. If you're a new listener and I'm, you're not used to my sarcasm, make sure you understand that. I think all this 2012 stuff is nonsense. I do think there will be greater encroachments on liberty in 2012 than any time in history. Why? Because there were greater encroachments on liberty in 2011 than any time in history. And then 2010, 2010, you guys see how it goes backwards like that. So the only remedy to the encroachment on liberty is the development and building of liberty in our individual lives. The Survival Podcast is not just about what to do when the shit has hit the fan. It's what to do while the shit is hitting the fan all around us right now. It's about how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And for a lot of people, times are really tough right now. And for a lot of people, they're not. Now, who doesn't have tough times right now? There's two kinds of people. People that have money coming out the wazoo. Remember that old commercial from the Super Bowl where they said the guy didn't need health insurance because his medical problems, money was coming out of his butt? Okay, those people don't have a lot of trouble right now. They may or may not have trouble in the future. We don't know. The other type of people that don't have a lot of problems right now are people that maybe have some money, maybe don't have a lot of money, but they've built a self-sufficient, independent lifestyle that's independent of debt and the systems as much as possible. That's the type of person we talk about becoming here on the Survival Podcast. And we're doing that today with our typical show for uh, Friday, which is our listener call show. That's where you pick up your phone and you mash some numbers, or maybe instead of mashing numbers in today's day and age with smartphones, instead of mashing them, you just touch the touchpad and you dial 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. We call it the Think Line. And we do that because we want you to think and we want me to think. So give me tough questions once in a while. And if a question is too tough for me, I'll send it over to one of our experts. We do not have expert responses today. We do have two set up for next week, one for Mr. Wheaton and one for Mr. Harris, uh, which means if somebody out there has a really great question for Darby Simpson from Stum, uh, Darby Simpson from Simpson Family Farms, uh, on let's say pastured pork or poultry or something like that, and you call that question in, if you'll send me an email, let me know the number you called in from, maybe I'll try to get three of the experts on next week since we don't have any this week. And that would be, you know, a person that would ask a question in that realm. Email me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com after you call and say, hey, I just called in a question for Darby. And I called from number X, Y, B, D, Q, whatever, you know. And then that way I'll be able to find it. And Because right now, basically, if you call this week, it's next week before your screen. So anyway, just a thought. Uh, before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. And sponsor of the day number one today, I'm really happy to be able to finally say this. Because it took them forever to get me a banner so that I could get them in the rotation of the right size and shape. Uh, but the Free State Project, uh, as most of you guys know that have been listening for a while, I did a speech on the Free State Project in February, and I was told by a lot of people in the audience they found my speech transforming. Well, what I found transforming was being surrounded by the people of the Free State Project. It was one of the more transformational experiences that I've ever had. 
And it, 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 it made me feel even better about what I do in a quest for personal individual liberty. And what these folks are doing, folks, is they're relocating to New Hampshire in an attempt to change the government of New Hampshire and make it the freest state in the Union. Note, I didn't say they say it's the freest state in the Union. They say that's their goal is to make it that. New Hampshire has the largest uh, legislative body, the third largest legislative body in the known world. Uh, they have basically, you know, your rep is down the street from you. You call them and his kids are answering the phone. It's a tremendous opportunity to influence government in the New Hampshire State House. Uh, the Senate is as well, but no, nowhere near the level of influence you can have at the State House up there. And about a thousand people have relocated to New Hampshire. Now, it's not for everybody. I love what they're doing, but I'm probably not moving to New Hampshire. But if you've ever thought about relocating somewhere and you want to be surrounded by a community that's got your back and you want to make a difference for liberty, consider the Free State Project. They're at freestateproject.org. Uh, and you'll now find their banner flying on the survivalpodcast.com with all of our other sponsors. Uh, and realize that you can get involved with and help out the Free State Project without actually moving to New Hampshire. So get in touch with them and ask them if they need any help. And I can tell you one place they might be able to use some help is a good graphic artist uh, that would be willing to donate some time to them to help them develop more materials because it took them like a month to get me a banner. It also took me like a week and a half to get it up once they did. So it's kind of my fault too, just to be fair. Next up today, uh, HarvestEating.com, Chef Keith Snow. Check out Chef Keith to learn how to cook seasonally and locally. We're going to have a ton of garden questions today. I didn't plan it that way. They just came in in that order, and it's going to be awesome. And you do all this stuff with herbs and gardening and growing all this stuff, and you go to your farmer's market, and you start buying fresh produce, and you get involved with the CSA, and you go there, and they hand you a great big thing of chard and daikon, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Get over to HarvestEating.com, and Chef Keith Snow will tell you how to cook seasonally and locally and use all that great stuff to cook nutritious, delicious food that your family will love. Get the steak seasoning from his store, guys. It's the best steak seasoning I've ever used in my life. My addition to it when I cook is some salt. Uh, I like that he doesn't include salt in his seasoning, though, because it lets you salt the taste. Uh, next up today, uh, I want to remind you, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, those are the primary social media outlets I use to stay in touch with the audience. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about 18 cents an episode. And uh, you get discounts to over 32 vendors. And uh, it's a great deal. It really is. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, Prior Service of any kind, get in touch with me. Let me know who you are, what you're doing, or who you are and what you did, and I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. And with the housekeeping wrapped up, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hi, Jack. This is Rational Husker from the Forum, calling with another forestry-related question. actually headed to my property right now to cut down and cut back some less desirable species of shrubs and some small trees. And that was calling because I want to get your take on something that a state forester told me. told me that I really need to use Roundup on these when I cut them. Um, otherwise, they'll just sucker and or just come right back and I'll just never get rid of them. But from my understanding of chop and drop, what you want to do is can just continue to cut these undesirable species back to, to create some open canopy and uh, let light through for the more desirable species. And that, yes, it may be more work for a while. You might have to go back two or three years and continue to cut cut them back. But that the, the, the less desirable species were actually doing work for you by drawing up nutrients to the surface where they're more available, and then you're chopping them down and putting them back on the surface so that chopping and dropping is actually enhancing or helping 
uh, future plantings in that area or more desirable species we're trying to establish. Whereas if I did the roundup thing, uh, they would just be dead then, and that wouldn't not necessarily be a bad thing. I'm not opposed to all forms of, of chemicals like that, but it actually just wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't have the, the side benefits of chop and drop. So could you explain chop and drop as you understand it, and, and let me know if I'm on the right track there. Thanks. Well, they say when you ask a question the right way, you answer for yourself, and you, you kind of did. I mean, I'll add to it, but you, you, you're pretty much 100% dead on. There's a few nuances we can look at here that, that help explain why this is the case, though. Generally speaking, people think backwards from nature, and that's where we come into conflict with it. So we look at an area, and we see something growing there, and we say to ourselves, self the stuff that plant needs to grow is there in abundance, and therefore it's occupied the space to take advantage of that. And that is the case sometimes, and it's completely reverse sometimes. And what I mean by that is in most of the plants that we consider invasive or undesirable tend to be the kind of thing that you would call a pioneering species. So a lot of different species of pine, for instance, are pioneering species. And we'll look at that and say, well, pines create acid soil. So there's acid soil there. And often that's not the case. Often what you have is alkaline soil, and the pines are there because they have the ability to create acid soil and bring the soil more into balance. So they can they can ha they can uh, handle the alkalinity because they create their own acidity to balance out the soil. So their role is actually not to turn soil acid but to to somewhat neutralize basic soil as a pioneering species. And then typically in eastern woodlands, everything, you know, and it's even somewhat west of the Mississippi, but definitely east of the Mississippi River in the United States, um, and all the way west into where I'm at, you have the same effect. What follows the pines really quickly thereafter, if they're left to be, is going to be oaks and hickories. And we get this mixed uh, because the pines are short-lived and the oaks and hickories are long-lived, And we say short-lived, but, you know, these pines might live 15, 25, 35 years, which if we're trying to do this in a, a sped-up way, seems like a long time. But for nature, come on, 35 years to nature is nothing. So even though these oaks and whatever are kind of below the pines and they don't have a lot of space, as soon as those pines start to drop off and die, we get an infestation, they'll call it, of pine beetles that take out some of the pines. Now those longer-lived trees will canopy out, and you get a forest society. Session and you get stands of pines amid large amounts of hardwoods. So that's one way that nature does this. So if we take that back to chop and drop, that's how we speed this process up. So when you look and you see this, these bushes and undergrowth growing that you don't want, you don't like them, it may not be so much they're growing because of what's there, but they're growing because of what's not there. And there's certain nutrients and minerals and things like that that are not up in the topsoil, but they're down deep in the subsoil or even further below the subsoil. And these plants have the ability to mine those nutrients and bring them to the surface, as you say, they're doing work for you. So what that means is that they need to bring enough of that nutrient up and make it bioavailable to, so that the next succession of species can take over and then outcompete what we call the undesirable species. Because if you've ever noticed, you go into an old forest, all those undesirable species aren't there. The, if you go into an old forest, and I say 75 years old or, or older since somebody's cut it, you can usually walk through it without a lot of tangles and snarls and snags because that's exactly what's happened. It's just taken 75 years to play out. When we chop it, 
the roots prune. They have to. And if there's, if there's any type of nitrogen fixing activity to these undesirables, if we want to call them that, it's, it, it creates a pulse. But even if it doesn't, there's all types of things built into the fungal hyphae net that connects the roots between each other. So when we cut that and we drop it, we, ex we accelerate the exchange of stuff going on below the soil. So it's not just above the soil, it's below the soil as well. Then the next thing is, we need to understand this. Uh, Paul Wheaton actually says it's not really important. I think it's hugely important that we understand this in our activities because it changes the way we think. Forest soil systems are fungal-based, and grassland uh, savanna systems are bacterial-based. Grasslands and savannas do their cycling of nutrient through the use of ruminant animals, animals that eat brush and grass and crap it out on the ground. And bacteria take over and break that down and build soil that way. Forests generally don't have large amounts of grazing animals. There's some deer running around and rabbits, but they little pellets and it's here and there. It's nowhere near what a herd of buffalo or cattle or pigs would do. Uh, even with pigs in the forest, they run in small bands and they're very, very far ranging. They don't do this kind of herd movement mentality that happens on savannas and plains. That means that when we do our chop and drop, the time we do it's very important. Fungal activity is highest in cool, wet, moist weather. So the best time for us to chop and drop is the cool of fall, put the stuff to the ground, and let the moisture of fall and winter and spring have a maximum amount of time for fungal activity on the material with which we've put to the ground. If we do it in summer, we end up with major evaporation and potential erosion problems, and the pioneering species having ample time to return while everything else is stressed. So we want to cut that pioneer species right at dormancy or right before it goes into dormancy and put it to the ground and let it break down in that fungal environment. Yes, we might have to do it a lot of times. We might have to do it several years, but every time we do it, we'll have less work the next time that we have to do it. As long as something else is growing there, we need to put other species into the space. A big permaculture principle we're talking about here is see problems as solutions, but another principle that's not one of the 12 that's, that's very important to understand is the layers in permaculture, canopy, subcanopy, vertical, rhizomial, ground cover, all those layers exist whether you want them to or not. If you don't put something in there to occupy the space... Something else will occupy the space on its own. So chop and drop, yes, but make sure you're planting things that are desirable in the area so that they can take advantage of the nutrient mining and they can occupy the space to eventually out-success the undesirable. Great question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Chip here in northern Nevada. A couple gardening questions for you uh, real quick. Um, I've noticed in the springtime, this happened last year too, I've got quite a bit of birds on my on my property that come visit, you know, like quail and things like that. Kind of, you know, might be useful in a sit at the fan kind of scenario. But uh, for now, what they're doing is they're eating uh, my seedlings. And uh, I wondered if you had any advice on how to prevent that from happening. I've, I've tried hanging some CDs near the beds, you know, so the wind kind of spins them and they're shiny. Seemed to keep them out for a while, but now they seem to have figured out that, you know, they can just walk, fly through that. Uh, so any other ideas um, you might have on that one? Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to ask about was uh, filtration for irrigation. Um, you know, I've noticed that the the plants seem to do better like after a rainfall as opposed to right after you know giving them the same amount of irrigation water. Uh, and I'm wondering if you know I've seen these things like garden hose filters and all. Um, we're on city water. They're 
smart enough to not put fluoride in our water, but uh, I'm sure it's still got chlorine. That's pretty hard. And I uh, wondered if you had any advice on that, you know, if you had any experience, um, whether it works or not, and if it's worth the cost and the, the effort. Thanks for everything. Uh, keep up the great work. Bye. Well, so it sounds like your major issue here is with quail. It's not birds in general, but quail. And, and they like to scratch like little chickens, and they love little green shoots and seeds. So we have a couple things that we can do here. One, we could fence the garden, and we don't have to fence it very high. Quail are, even though they can fly, they like to be on the ground, and they like to walk into feeding areas. So if we did something like a three-foot-high fence around the garden, it would probably help a lot. The other thing we can do is we can say, well, why are they coming there? And it's because there's food there, and they've, they've found more food there than, than elsewhere. So we could create our own little plot for them. And if we created our own little plot and we decided we would feed them, we would actually condition them to come around more and fatten them up. And if we ever needed to harvest them, and there's probably a season, and you could probably legally harvest them now, you would have to not feed them when you're harvesting them at that period of time. But, you know, if things grow on their own and they're still coming around, you could. So you could control the population through legal harvest, and we could also create a plot for them. And I would tell you the, the what I have found that quail love, and it's the cheapest seed I can find that you know you can use as feed for just about anything, is white millet. I mean, you can get white millet cheap. Uh, most of the uh, birdseed blends that you buy, like the cheap generic birdseed blends, are mostly white millet to begin with. And it grows very well. And it grows and it puts a seed head on. It doesn't take long to do. And, and if you had a, a patch that you prepared that was kind of like, if you figure out the path that these quail are generally taking to your garden, make your garden as undesirable as possible. Again, fencing is one way to do that. Because, yeah, they can get over, but they don't really like to be contained. Wild animals don't like that, so they have to go inside there. So they're less likely to do that. And, and somewhere in between, set up like a bed for the quail and just throw a cup or two of millet in there, uh, you know, put a bunch down at first, but maybe once a week go out there and throw two or three cups of millet in there, you might find that they would prefer eating the millet shoots, the, the seed heads that form from the ones they don't get, and the millet that you're continuing to recharge the system with over your, your stuff. Uh, some other things I guess you could do is... Uh, you, you could put some some of those rubber snakes in your garden. I don't know how well that works. I've never tried it. I don't have a lot of faith that it'll work very well. Um, the big plastic dummy owls, that might work pretty well. Um, I know that one of the Costcos I used to go to, they had a real problem with pigeons up in the, like in the entryway, making nests all up in there. And of course they didn't like that because then there was pigeon poo on people on the way into their store. Not good for your branding, right? So, um, they, they would, uh, they put up like four of these big owls and they were the ones that like the heads, when a breeze comes, the heads move a little bit and they had glass eyes and it pretty much solved the problem. So, That would be another one. Anybody else that's had an issue with quail eating your seedlings, uh, let us know what you would do in the blog today in the blog comments. Okay, on your next question about filtering water, um, I, I don't know that it's worth it, but it can't hurt anything if you wanted to do it. I don't even know the cost. I've never looked into it. But we need to understand that it's not just about the fact there's chlorine in our water as to why rain makes things grow better than anything that's ever going to come out of a hose. 
even if you had a pond, like pond is better than than uh, than, uh, than than city water, and a, a well is better than city water, and a well and a pond are pretty dead gone close. Um, but rain, you got to realize it's fallen for thousands of feet through the atmosphere. It's picked up atmospheric gases. It's been ionically charged, and it, it's just a better quality water. It's what things were designed to grow from. So the the entire plant species of of Earth, uh, with a few exceptions of things that grow in bogs and things like that, uh, has has evolved to grow from rainwater. So you're giving it its preferred form of water. The other thing, and this is the bigger thing that people don't get, they water their plants, and then two days later, they have to water their plants again. And then two days later, or if you know that a much more rich soil climate with, with more humidity and, and a little less intense sun, maybe it's every week you got to water it. And then it rains, and the plants, boom, and they don't need to be watered for much longer. Well, it's because water is going to move from areas of greater concentration to areas of lesser concentration. So if I water the heck out of my garden bed and I drench it, water's going to flow down and out and away. And I can only do so many things to hold that water there. I can do hugel culture and hold a lot of water there. I can do really rich soil and hold some water there. I can put mulch down and reduce the evaporative effect. And, and I could do things like that. I could put other things in like the block wind and reduce the wind evaporation effect. But the reality is that water, if I've got a, let's say a 10 foot by 5 foot bed that I've soaked down and it hasn't rained for a few weeks and all of the soil around that bed is dry, it's going to wick from my wet bed into the dry soil. So no matter how much I water, I can't compete with a drenching rain. So it's not even about the quality of the water in some ways. It's about the total amount of water saturating the ground so that the water actually stays in place longer for the plants to utilize. So there's a lot of things there. So filtering the water may help. If anybody's done that and actually noticed a noticeable difference, and I think this would be an easy experiment. You could take two beds with the same solar exposure, growing the same mix of plants with the same soil mixture, and water them by hand. And water one every day with filtered water and one with non-filtered water. Or judge the results for yourself if you really wanted to do it. And I think if it was that simple and it worked that well, that there'd be people out there demonstrating that to sell our filters. So I don't think it's going to have as big an impact as some people would like to believe. If you're watering small scale, let's say you're doing uh, four or five beds, you know, four by eights or something like that, uh, you probably could water each one daily with a five-gallon bucket. And create your own drip water irrigation system. So that basically you take the bucket, you set it up on your bed so it's elevated, you plug the drip tubing into it, and you turn maybe a little valve a little, little valve on the bottom of the bucket that you install. And let that five gallons drip into a 4 by 8 bed every day. That's probably more than enough irrigation. If you had four beds and eight buckets, you could fill the buckets a day before, and most of your chlorine will off-gas before you, you water it. And then you wouldn't have to filter anything. And you could do that on a larger scale. You could do two buckets to a bed, whatever. You just need to mirror your buckets. Or if you did enough, you could do it every other, water every other day. Just water one day, fill your buckets the next day, open the drain cocks the, the third day, that type of thing. And you'll off-gas a lot of that chlorine if you want to get that out of there. And that might help. But nothing is a substitute for rain. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Quick comment in response to your mention of Joel Salatin on episode 839. Um, when he first started his farm, started farming his farm, 
the pastures were growing next to nothing. The land was worn out, was dry as a bone, and very hard. And all he did was start rotating cattle on it. And just doing that brought it to being oh, so fertile that he can pasture multiple cows per acre for uh, a large, very large part of the year. Uh, this is mentioned in one of his books. I think it's either You Can Farm or it might be Salad Bar Beef. But either way, he was not dealing with fertile soil that had a good grass stand growing when he got there. It was dry, barren, growing next to nothing, and simply by putting his cattle on and rotating them intensively one paddock per day, um, he got to where he is now, very fertile land. So just want to let you know. Bye. Well, I mean, that's one of those things you go, yeah and no at the same time. There's no doubt that paddock rotation of cattle will improve soil quality, will loosen the soil, will encourage the growth of good things, and, and just make everything better. There's no doubt about that at all. Uh, but to say that when Saladin started out, his land was absolutely not fertile and hardly anything was growing, and all he did was put cows on it and that fixed it, is way short of the truth. And, the re and it's almost a nitpick thing. But the reason it's important to me to point it out is if somebody listens to that and they're sitting out in like some kind of sandy plain where there really is nothing, and they decide, well, I'll just take you know four cows and just start rotating them through my land and they'll fix it, it ain't going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. Because there's not enough for them to graze on for the process to begin. So I have no doubt that somebody would have looked at Joel's land and went, well, that's terrible grazing property. That's just, that's just not what you want. But to say that it was infertile and had almost nothing growing on it is just so short-sighted. The area he lives in in Virginia has some of the most fertile native soil known to man. It's soil that tolerates abuse better than anything in the Great Plains because of the way the land is laid out. People wonder why there's still so many small farms in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Vermont, Virginia. And the reality is because the way the land lays topographically with, uh, with hills and, and valleys and mountains and things like that, it makes, you know, 10,000-acre farms, completely impractical. Not to mention, since people have been there longer than anywhere else, more, more people own land, so people can't go out and buy 10,000 acres in Virginia. It just doesn't happen very often. But if you got the money, man, you can go out to Nebraska and do it right now. So because the land has been managed in smaller tracts, even where it's been abused, it's been less abused, and there's more soil there. So if you have hard-packed soil, right, it's not that it's not fertile, it's that it's hard-packed. And only certain things will grow there. Now, if I bring ruminants in there and I don't overgraze it, I immediately start to rotate them, they will, in fact, heal the land. As they remove certain... It's, it's, it's almost the first question about chop and drop, but in a savanna landscape, grassland environment versus a forest. Um, the cattle will come out. They'll take the undesirable species. They'll eat it because it's all that's there for them to eat, even though some desirables are still growing at a lower rate. They'll eat it. They'll ruminate it. 
That's what we call them ruminants. It goes through their three stomachs, and they'll crap it onto the ground, and instead of a fungal breakdown, we'll get a bacterial breakdown. The soil will begin to grow. The ruminant is taking the, the nutrient that's coming from the less desirable plant up, passing it through their body and making it bioavailable so that the more desirable plants can success and take over. And Joel has said he's never put a seed down in his pasture. Everything that grows there is grown there natively. Well, that's how it works. So it's not there was no clover or, or more desirable grass like bunch grass or whatever it, on the pasture. It was just in a very minority and there's, of course, growing in other areas around him and seeds come in with birds and wind and things like that. So you're right, but you're not exactly right. And it's important that people don't get the wrong idea about what's possible. If you truly have a piece of barren, compacted land, where there is no vegetation, you can't put a cow out there and expect that it won't die. You have to have something growing. And it has to be something that can sustain the cattle. And a process like what Saladin did started out with very few. And you had to slowly increase the head count. But, yes, and it works better than agriculture. Ranching cattle is far more productive and far better for the land than growing corn and soy. And I know I'm peeing off all the vegans again, but I'm sorry. That's just the facts. And you can look at what Salatin's done, and you see how amazing it is. And, like, you know, one of the things that really drives home what Joel Salatin's done is he's been grazing this land with cattle, pigs, and chickens for over, de you know, several decades now. And you would think that if you managed land that intensively did that, you would just be taking away from it. They had to raise his fence posts... Because the fence was getting too short because the topsoil was being built up to such a level that the fence was now a foot shorter than it was supposed to be. Now, that's what can be done. So it is miraculous. It is amazing what nature can do. But if we don't have some level of vegetation growing there, if it was truly barren, totally unfertile, we wouldn't be able to just do it with cattle. We would have to go in there, and maybe the first time around we would have to plow it. Or we'd have to wait for the right rain, and we would have to seed it with something like daikon uh, and dandelion, something that would open up that, that soil. We can't just throw cows on barren land and say, okay, fix it, cow. It won't work. It can't work. There has to be something there to start with. Um, if, if I tried to do what Joel Salatin did, uh, if, I, if, if my property was 20 acres instead of five, and if all 20 was like my front yard is, right now, if I had done what I had done this last year, I could do it. But if I would have started from day one that way, all the cattle would have died or I would have had to feed them, one or the other. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is uh, Rob, uh, logging a SD Homesteader on your uh, form there. Uh, I got a question uh, about IRAs and 401s. I am... Um, fully disabled, so I don't work anymore, but I still have a 401k that right now has a good little chunk in it. So I, I want to get that out uh, to where I can at least manage it, and I want to move it into an IRA that has um, a lot of precious metal options. I don't mean like where I can buy the little, you know, what do you call them, certificates, electronic, gold. I want to be able to buy the real thing and, and have it uh, mailed out if, I, if and when I need it. Um, so, yeah, if you have any recommendations on something like that, I'm in the process of trying to roll this thing over and just want to find a good spot to land it uh, so I can kind of lay out the stocks a bit. So any help you can give, uh, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. 
Uh, this guy actually called back in and said, never mind, I went and searched the site and found my own answer at the survivalpodcast.com using the search box. But I think it's a great question. It was well asked, and it's one that we need to answer. And I know that uh, from the Glenn Beck appearance, we got about 2,500 people join the email list, and I'm assuming half of those are listening now. So that's 1,200 people roughly that are listening to the show that three weeks ago had never heard of the show before probably. And... If you're from that group, you're probably big on precious metals, as you should be, and you're probably concerned about your retirement, and you should be, and you probably are saving money and, and, and investing, and you should be. So this is a question that would apply not just to all the people that have already been listening, but that entire new segment of people that have maybe never heard me talk about this before. So I figure I'll answer it because it's a good question. Um, the first thing I would say, though, is don't do it. Don't put physical metal in your IRA. And you might be going, well, why not? Well, here's why. You can do it. You need a custodial account where the custodian is willing to allow you to hold gold and silver. Some will, a lot won't. The reason they don't like it is they don't make any money on it. It's another service they have to provide and they don't get any money on it. You can't have an IRA and then have metal shipped to your house, put it in a strong box in your house and say it's, it's in my IRA. It doesn't work that way. It has to be held by a third party on your behalf as your custodian. So it has to be somewhere else anyway. And you have to, you know, you can't go pick it up and hold it and play with it. It's, it's being held, it's physical metal by someone else. If you really want to hold gold and silver in an IRA, you do it with an ETF. And it's better. If you're gonna, if you're gonna trade metal, do it with an ETF. Exchange traded fund. There's an ETF for silver. There's an ETF for gold. There's an ETF for platinum. There's an ETF for palladium. There's an ETF for copper. There's a rare earth metals ETF. The reason you do that inside an IRA is you want to make things as quickly liquidatable as possible because it's a, a it's a highly visible instrument by the government. So it's also the most regulated money on planet Earth. So when you have, a, 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 let's say, 100 ounces of silver in your possession, it's the most anonymous wealth on earth. It's physical metal. I can take it and hand it to somebody. We can barter with it. Yes, we're supposed to report it, but I choose when and how and if. It's, it's physical metal. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's as much as a coffee cup. If I say to you, hey, I like your coffee cup, you like my coffee cup, yeah, here, like for like. There's no profit. There's really nothing to report. Got it? It's anonymous. When you put it into an IRA or a 401k or something like that, everybody and their mother can see it. So it's now the most regulated money in the world. So you've taken the most unregulated, most anonymous form and most portable form of money in the world, and now you've locked it inside a vehicle that makes it the most highly regulated and highly visible form of wealth in the world. If you're going to do that, you might as well have an ETF. Because, let's say, silver makes a big jump up to 60 bucks, and you've got it in an IRA... Well, you're not touching that for a long time anyway, but maybe you decide, hey, there's a profit here, and everybody's jumped in and gotten silly like they did, you know, remember, about what, eight, nine months ago, silver almost cracked $50, and if you couldn't see that that was a, 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 a short-term spike, right? So what did I do with all the silver in my house when that short-term spike happened? Nothing. It's long-term money. If I had an ETF holding silver at that period of time, I would have sold every share that I had. And when it fell back to around 30 bucks, I would have bought it all back. And I, it's really 
complicated to do that with physical metal in an IRA, and it's really easy to do with an ETF. So if it is in a regulated vehicle, use paper to trade money. Because let me tell you the, the facts of the matter. If it's in an IRA, it's all paper anyway. It might be paper that backs physical metal you hold somewhere, but it's still a paper trail. So just to me, it doesn't make sense to take my anonymous wealth and convert it into highly regulated, highly, highly visible wealth. It's, I just wouldn't do it. I, I've never even tried, and I wouldn't advise that you do either. I would take that money and do And if you say, well, but that's where I wanted my physical metal. That's where I wanted metal by ETFs. You say, well, that's money I had allocated for that. Put it into something else that you feel is a good investment. And then instead of making more contributions there, buy physical metal and hold it somewhere else. That's just my advice. I might be the only person in the world that sees it that way, but I've explained to you guys why. And if you still want to do it, you can do it. Uh, what you need to do is look for someone that will do what's called a custodial silver IRA. And you can do that as a standard conventional IRA or a Roth. And I always say go with the Roth. And I don't even want to argue about why, and I don't even want to explain it today. It's going to be a long show anyway, but you can do it either way. But you've got to find somebody that will act as your custodian and do that for you. And I could give you some companies, but it wouldn't be right because I have no personal experience with them, and I have no way of knowing if I'd be giving you a good recommendation. So I would look for online reviews of other people that have actually used them to find somebody you can trust. If somebody here has done it, and you've got a good, solid company that will do a custodial silver, custodial gold IRA account for you and hold your physical metal for you, I'm okay with recommending them. You let me know your experience, and we'll, we'll mention them on a future show. Let's take another call. Hello, Tech. Lydia Seaback here from Midway. I have wound up with some extra garden space, and I am looking at perennial medicinal herbs. In your opinion, what would be the top five or ten medicinal herbs that you would include in a area set aside strictly for herbs? Thank you, and have a wonderful day. Well, it's a great question. I don't know if I can confine myself to 10 answers, though. And I also want you to kind of expand what you call a medicinal herb. And I want you to expand what you call a perennial because there's so many things that are not thought of as medicinal that are so beneficial and not thought as perennial that can be grown as perennial. So one of the first ones I would mention, and it's not my primary one, but it's a perfect example of that with expanding the definition, is parsley. Parsley is the biannual, so it grows one year, you can cut the heck out of it, it keeps coming back. It grows a second year, early in the year, you can keep cutting it, keep coming, then it shows up, then the leaves change shape, sends up this great big stalk, it goes to seed, and those leaves are really kind of crappy and not really good for anything. They don't taste the same anymore, and you're like, okay, now what do I do? Well, what you do is you let it be. It gets these huge pancake-shaped white flower heads on it. Bees and flies and all kinds of great things come in and pollinate and become predators and help protect the rest of your garden. And then it dries out and then you take this, the, the, the head and you cut it off and you just shake it everywhere. And there's like billions of parsley seeds. And if you do that, you'll always have parsley. You'll be taking some of it out because it will be almost weed-like in some areas with if you don't have other herbs growing. Now, if you're growing other perennials, their perennial nature will suppress where it can grow. You might actually prune them back to let some of the parsley come up. So it's not a set it and forget it. There's a little bit of maintenance that goes on with that. So that would be one. Now, going to true perennials, um, and okay, real quick, on the parsley. 
So people go, that's not a medicinal herb. It's a tremendously wonderful herb. Antioxidant, uh, antiviral, antibacterial properties, very, very mild properties like that. But if you eat fresh parsley every day, medicinal herbs are not so much about, okay, I'm dying of swine flu, so now I'm going to go eat this stuff and then I'm going to get better. Medicinal herbs are more about maintenance and making them part of your everyday life. So there are some true medicinals. Valerian would be a great thing to grow in a perennial herb garden. You're having trouble getting to sleep. Valerian is a great sedative if you're kind of having some nervous issues where you're a little bit nervous, anxiety, very, very calming. We can combine that with chamomile, which is an annual, but a self-receding annual if we grow it a lot. So that's part of what I'm saying here is with herbs, they have this really hearty nature that means they'll come back for you. So chamomile, valerian, and a tea uh, is a great relaxer. Some other true perennials that you could grow, um, sage. Sage is a great cooking herb, but a great medicinal herb as well, especially if we can include it in our diet. And I'm not talking about the dried up little crumbled sage that you buy. So I'm talking about fresh sage from your garden. It handles itself way into winter, and it comes out way early in spring. Uh, some climates, you won't even have any deciduous effect to it. And uh, in those climates, you got it all year round. And man, there's nothing that makes poultry, turkey, chicken, whatever, come alive, like chopped fresh sage rubbed on the skin when you cook it. And then you're also getting the medicinal effects as well. Uh, you know, you can't grow this in uh, in most of the areas without doing it in a container and bringing it inside. Uh, but you could have a container that goes and sits in your herb garden, maybe open bottom so that it can use the moisture from the soil, maybe even dig a hole down where it could set in there and, and then just take it in the winter. But it's lemongrass. Lemongrass is amazing. Chives, uh, chives just come back forever. And we get all of the effects of any allium species with chives, garlic and onion. Uh, if you ask most herbalists what is the one herb, if you could have no other herbs, what would it be is garlic, right? So uh, chives, especially, we get many of those things. How about garlic? And people go, well, garlic's an annual. Well, not necessarily. What if you put in 20 or 30 garlic sets into your herb garden? You've got the green tops you can cut and use as you want. You harvest them once a year. When you harvest them, you have, you know, you can wait till fall when you're supposed to plant to harvest garlic. So you plant it in the fall and you pick it just before the fall of the next year. So if we put in 20 sets, 20 cloves, when we harvest it, we take 18, we take two, we take the sets, we throw them right back in the garden. Done. It's easy. It might as well be a perennial. Um, some other things we can look at would be things like, oh, I don't know, saffron. Saffron is the most expensive herb on planet Earth. It's a great cooking herb. It also has medicinal properties. It grows from a flower called a crocus or a crocus, depending on how you pronounce it. It's a bulb. You plant the bulb, it grows, it dies, it comes back next year over and over again. Lavender. Lavender is an amazing medicinal herb, very hardy, comes back over and over again. Uh, feverfew uh, kind of comes in and takes the place of chamomile in some ways, and yet it's perennial, and chamomile generally we don't think of it as being perennial. Uh, there's tons of them. I mean, if you just look up perennial herbs, you can find things. How about some stuff we generally don't think of? How about dandelion? A lot of us have trouble even thinking about how we would get rid of dandelion, but dandelion can be encouraged, and it's it's one of the most underutilized medicinal herbs. Every single part of it 
has medicinal properties. The root, the plant itself, and the flower. Echinacea is uh, is is great as an immune booster, and it's uh, it's it's something that reproduces by root and root division. You can go out instead of like growing your echinacea from seeds, you can go out to the garden stop shops and buy echinacea root, plant it straight into the ground, and get it off the ground really really quick, and it'll come back over and over again. Uh, if you're really ambitious, ginseng is an amazing uh, medicinal uh, mint. Every species of mint, spearmints, peppermints, lemon bombs actually a species of mint, bee bombs a species of mint. Uh, they all have similar effects. They are one of the easiest things to grow. They can be invasive. You can create what I call mint prison for them, though, either by rocking them in, by digging a hole and rocking the sides of the hole, or one of the ways that I kind of imprisoned my bee bomb and right in my vegetable garden in Texas was I went to uh, Home Depot, and they have these things that look like, like, like peel-and-stick tile, but they look like wood plank. So they're about three feet long, and they're made out of this linoleum. And I just got two of those and put them into a loop and bound them together, dug a hole and stacked them on top of each other in the hole, and then planted my bee bomb into the center of that. I had no problem with runners. So mints are awesome, but they'll take the whole place over if you don't confine them in some way. So maybe one way you could do that is you have your herb garden space, and you take an area that you rock in that's separated from the rest of your herbs and plant your mints in there and just watch it. If it starts to, you see its runner start to crawl out and it starts to expand itself into that main herb garden. As soon as it touches soil, it'll put down roots and effectively create a new plant. So you do have to use some control over your mints, but I would never be without mint in my garden and, and, and what have you. One of the best things for tea. So there's just some idea. I mean, I could do a whole show uh, on nothing but just what you can grow. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I did some great shows on herbal actions. So if you look those up, put herbal action in the search box. Uh, I went through four different shows, 40 different herbal actions, and you'll find that in all of these herbal actions, there were some herbs that we think of as cooking herbs that had all of the medicinal actions in them as well, especially antiviral, uh, antioxidant, antibacterial, antimicrobial. Almost every herb has those properties as part of its essential oils, and if we're eating the fresh herbs, we're getting those oils in a very mild, moderate way. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. <clears throat> this is Ron in uh, California. I was just wondering uh, if you have any books that you recommend for me to read on paleo diet. I'm 67 years old and uh, 300 pounds, and uh, I can't walk like I used to, you know, a couple of miles a day. So I'll try just about anything. Thank you. I mean, to me, I'm going to have to say, of course, that, you know, the book that did the most for me in understanding this and putting it into practice was The Paleo Solution, the original human diet by, diet by Rob Wolf. And I agree with 99% of what Rob has to say in his book. I am not so sold on the lean beef concept. All the meat should be as lean as possible. I actually believe, and he's not really that way either, but he does lean toward lean toward the uh, the the grass-fed lean beef, which I'm all about the, the grass-fed part. But even with grass-fed beef, a ribeye has a lot more fat marbling in it than, let's say, a, uh, a piece of the sirloin from it or uh, from a piece of the strip from it. So I'm really kind of big on making sure you're getting some fat intake. So that's the one caveat with Rob's book. 
I think another book that's not really about paleo, but is a great book for you to read, is The Protein Power Plan by the Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Eads. So there's two of them. I, I think it's Michael and Jan, maybe, is the, the two doctors. But it's a husband and wife that wrote that book. It was my first experience with going to a low-carb lifestyle. Now, the conflict between the low-carb and the paleo is, in paleo, if it's wheat or uh, certain other items like certain legumes and things like that, we just don't eat it. Where with low-carb, you can eat it, but you eat it in moderation. And I'm somewhere between the two. Every once in a while, I'll eat a couple crackers. They taste good. I know they're not good for me, but it's not good for me when I smoke a cigar either, but every once in a while, I smoke a cigar. And I look at it that way. Um, another thing that I have to say, though, you're 67. You've lived your whole life the way that you have. Uh, you 300 pounds, that's a lot of extra weight to carry around. Yeah, you need to do something, but you might want to ease into this. One thing I learned from Dr. Greg Ellis about this, and he's not paleo, he's low-carb, so more along the lines of EADS, but he has a lot of you know, additional things he thinks they left out, is that a lot of toxins in our bodies from the way we eat poor-quality food throughout our entire lives are stored in our fat cells. And when we begin to burn fat and we begin to turn on that furnace and we begin to dump that, a lot of those toxins come back into the bloodstream that have been held up in those fat cells. And that's a lot of times why when people go on paleo for the first couple of weeks, they feel like crap. Because even though it was already in you, it was sort of locked up in those fat cells. So... I mean, you can do what I did and go hardcore with it. And what I did was for 60 days, I did the wolf plan. If it wasn't something he said I could have, I did not eat it. Uh, so I even didn't do dairy during that period of time, even though he says, don't do dairy. And then he says, I can't make a case against butter uh, and cheese and cream. And, and that was my one thing I did was cream in my coffee, straight up cream. And, and it worked great. And, and I felt great. I didn't have the... Two weeks of misery that some people go through. But it, it could be something. I'll also alert you to this. Unless you keep enough food around that you're allowed to eat, you will end up with cravings for food you're not supposed to eat. It does happen. If you keep a wide variety of high-quality paleo food around you when you're doing this, you'll say to yourself, I'm hungry. And you'll say, I can have any of these things right here. And you grab a couple almonds maybe and a piece of cheese. Right, and, and you eat that. Or you go, I really don't want any of that, and you realize I'm not really hungry. If you don't have that available, you, if, and, you and if you haven't gone through your house and gotten rid of all the stuff you're not supposed to eat, you will find yourself fiending for this food and going after it. People say, does that mean you're supposed to eat it? No, no. When a crack addict quits crack, and they go through detox, and they, and they basically stabilized out the other side, they still have that gnawing desire for crack, and they will for the rest of their life. This complex carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate, it's sugar is what it is. I don't care what form it is, it's in sugar. And you are probably addicted to it, and 99% of Americans are addicted to it. And the only way to quit eventually is, is, is to get to a cold turkey state and stay there for a long time. But just like the person uh, that's on speed might go to a methadone clinic and use methadone to wean off, you might have to wean yourself off in the early stages. At 67 and 300 pounds, I would also try to tell you, I can't give you medical advice. These are my opinions, not advice. So I would go find yourself a physician who is open to this, 
that can monitor your progress while you do it. It might take calling 20 or 30 different doctors. They might not be in your network or your Medicaid or whatever. You might have to pay out of pocket. Just for the initial stages, it's probably worth every penny of it. And your doctor that doesn't want to help you with it, when you can take him back in, in, in a year, your weight, your cholesterol, everything else, maybe you open a mind. But be careful at your age and your weight after doing this for so long because God knows what's locked up that you're going to release. And it's not so much that I'm worried like something really bad will happen to you. It's that I'm worried that the experience will be such that you'll say, this isn't for me. And I, and I didn't understand that at the beginning because I didn't go through it. And until Dr. Ellis explained to me what's happening to these people, I didn't get it. Uh, and with some of the things I did to myself over 10 years, I don't know why, but I mean, I just adapted to it almost immediately. I felt better almost immediately. But some people are carrying these toxins, heavy metals, uh, other chemicals that are in your body that they end up suspended in liquid. So they end up in the fat. And since they end up in the fat, they're there. They're doing damage, but they're not actively doing damage like full scale. And all of a sudden now they're flooding through your system as you're dumping out that fat as you're burning it. So be careful going. This is for everybody. Be careful going in. And maybe some of you guys need to ease in. I still think hardcore full tilt bore for the, a healthy, you know, 20 to 40 something is probably the best way to go. But if you do it and you get that horrible feeling, back it off a little bit, give it a week and then go full tilt again. I think that that'll help. But definitely somebody, older person with that much weight to lose, please see a physician before doing this. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Carney Princess from the forum. I was just listening to episode 860, uh, call-in show, where one of the callers asking about uh, a modern hunter-gatherer type of lifestyle, and, and you were giving some suggestions on that. And uh, I thought that I might also include a suggestion that you should check out Woofing, W-W-O-O-F, stands for, uh, oh, and I forget. I can call you back with a better answer later, but uh, it's uh, woof.org, W-W-O-O-F.org, and it's basically a combination of couch surfing and organic farming. I plan on doing some of it this summer, and uh, it's all over the world and all over the U.S. Thanks. Bye. I know that a lot of people have had a lot of great experiences with, uh, with woofing, and, and woofing is worldwide opportunities on organic farms. And basically... You go there and you join, and then you can look up people who are looking for help. So you might find, you might say, I want to spend four months in Montana, uh, and you might find a woo farm in Montana and go there. And they will provide you, sometimes they provide you a small stipend. It all depends. Some, it's like 25 bucks a week or, week or something like that. They provide you with a place to stay and they provide you with meals. Some people do three meals a day. Some people provide you with lunch and dinner. Uh, no one's going to get rich as a woofer. It's a very low, it's an exchange of your labor for a place to stay. And like I said, some people do extra things. The more they give you, the more they expect from you. I looked at this and thought, man, this might be great for somebody that wants to go, and, you know, work two hours a day and, and get a loft in a barn. Um, very few people want someone that wants to come there and work two hours a day. They're looking for people to put in a full day's work most days out of the week. And, and the big thing is it's not so much in exchange for staying there. It's about learning. It's about developing the skill set. So what's it really like to run an alpaca farm? You can't read a book about it and know if it's for you. 
but you can go as a woofer on an alpaca farm and you can you can find out by actually doing the job. And I've talked to people that are the the farmers and they have similar experiences. Sometimes you get great woofers, sometimes you get crappy woofers. Uh the people that have had the best results tell me the following. We make sure that we engage with them, talk to them and make them part of the operation for real, not just use them the way we would use low cost, you know, uh uh laborers. Two, we make sure they have a nice place to stay. It may not be it may be a barn, but we fix it up for them, we give them their own little kitchen. Three, that place is their own space. It's not a bedroom in our house. It's somewhere where they can get away from it. Four, we bring in more than one or two. We bring in a group, so they have a group dynamic. They have their own little community going on. They can talk to each other. They can learn from each other. They can amuse each other. Uh, and that last one is we do not overwork them. We expect good quality work out of them, but we don't try to drive them. You know, if we work 12 hours a day, it doesn't mean our woofers work 12 hours a day. You know, we, the ones that, that I've talked to that seem the happiest say, you know, we work our guys about six hours a day. And that gives them plenty of time to, to, to play music and sit in the field or write poetry or do whatever the soul-building component of this is. And it's a small price to pay to get somebody to work six hours a day for you to give them a little space and let them share your, your dinner table. Uh, it, it's it, So it's what you make of it, and there's really good farms to go do this at, and there's some that that people have said I had terrible experiences with. And, and there, for the farmer, there's really good workers out there, And then there's workers that you really don't want. And, you know, making that determination quickly is a good idea. Uh, but great suggestion. I don't know how well it fits with the question that you were responding to by the other caller. Um, cause I don't think that that was the kind of thing he really wanted to do. But for some people, it's a great option. The website is www.oof.org and they have it all around the world. They have one just for North America, one for Latin America. And I want you to think about this. There's absolutely no reason if you are a young person, 20 years old, 21 years old, with a little bit of money to pay your basic expenses, you couldn't go work on an organic farm in Hawaii for three or four months. Just saying, it'd be an interesting experience for a young person, or the wilds of Montana, or Latin America, Costa Rica, or something like that. Uh, there are opportunities everywhere for it. And for those of you that have operations, consider becoming part of this and bringing these people on your property to help you, because if we want to grow the local food movement, we need to grow the knowledge base. And to me, that's what Woofing's really all about. Let's take another call. Hello, this is One Green Man from South Texas, a new MSB member. I'm calling today with a little bit of insight for someone considering a new home mortgage. So if you're considering it and you're considering uh, the bank's advice of only doing a low down payment, 3.5 to 15% down payment, reconsider. Because one thing that'll, that'll get you that ends up costing you a lot more and banks don't explain to you is mortgage insurance. What mortgage insurance is, is something that covers the bank's butt. It doesn't benefit you at all. If you pass away, if you can't make the payments, your kids don't inherit anything, the mortgage doesn't get paid off, it doesn't cover you, it only co protects the banks. What does it cost you? Well, on an FHA loan, what the upfront mortgage insurance premium costs, that's what you pay during your closing costs, either you or your seller, but it's still, it's going to count against you even if, you're, if the seller pays it. But it's at least 1%. That's 1% that's going to be added to the total cost of your loan that's going to be paid at your closing costs, 1% in addition to whatever your other fees are. Also, you'll have an annual mortgage insurance premium of between 0.55% and 
that gets added to your annual percentage rate of what you're paying on the loan as it is. So if you paid down that 20%, if you paid it down, you would actually save, end up saving on that 20%, 5% up front, 5.7% on an annual basis for a first-year savings on that 20% that you did pay down of 10.7%. So reconsider it. You ended up saving yourself money. I know it's hard, but don't give the money to the banks. All right? Keep it for yourself. Pay that 20% down. Now, everything the caller said is absolutely factual and true, but it's not always that simple. Uh, we look at the place we bought in Arkansas. When we bought that, it was a second home. So we had already stacked 20% equity into our first home. So in that situation, we didn't exactly just have a whole bunch more money sitting around to buy a second home with. So we had to make a decision, and we decided to go with 10% down versus 20% down. Now, here's why. When I figured out, guess 1% at closing. So on a $75,000 home, it was $750. Bucks. It's not that much money. And then the PMI payment, uh, and I said, okay, how many years would I make this payment, including the PMI, before I would be back to par? In other words, the other 10% that I put down on the house, if I put that $7,500 there on the house, how long would it take me before all the PMI... And the 1% front end added up to that 7500 and I was back to par, so to speak. The answer was 13 years and 9 months. 13 years and 9 months. So do I come out at the end of a 30-year mortgage ahead there? Yeah, but I also have that significant sum of money tied up for 13 years when it doesn't have to be. So in that situation, already with buying a second home and not wanting to tie up that much equity... And having a low purchase price, it didn't work out that way. So each situation is independent and situational. And what I would tell anybody to do before just making the decision, we're going to go 20% down just because we don't want to pay PMI. Now, if you want to go 20% down because – and when I did it with our home in Texas, our first home, uh, I guess it's really not our first one, it was our third one, but our first one in this series here, uh, you know, going from one to two homes – We didn't really do it so much because we would get out of PMI. That was a nice additional thing. We did it because it put us into an equity-heavy situation. It made getting the mortgage very easy in a situation where I was unemployed at the time and had to do self-employment income reporting uh, to, to get the mortgage. So by coming up with the 20%, it, it got us the mortgage, and it got us a good interest rate instead of what could have been a not-so-good interest rate Additionally, it put equity into the home, and that safeguarded our position. Because what that meant was if we had to sell the home, even for a paper loss, we could have gotten out from under it, even in a housing crisis, which coincidentally happened not that many years later. We still actually made a little money on the home, but we could have gotten out from underneath it. And when we sold it with some things that were going on with appraisals and stuff like that, we had to make some concessions we didn't want to, having that equity there made it much easier for us to bite the bullet and do it. It made the difference between us taking a check away when we left the closing table with possibly having to backfill a little bit of money. So it was a better decision for a completely different set of reasons. So if you're only going 20% to avoid the PMI, do the math and say to yourself, self, if I add up the cost of doing PMI or the cost of putting the capital in now, how many years does it take? 
And it's a pretty simple number. You take the 1%, you minus that from your down payment, you take your down payment, you say, what's my estimated PMI payment, you know, 80 bucks or whatever, divide that by the remainder, and you end up with a number of months. 12 months to a year, divide it by 12, you'll get 12 point something, there's your answer. In our case, again, it was almost 14 years. And for 14 years, my money's tied, you know, so... I decided in that instance, and I also looked at the, the, the price of our home in, in Arkansas being so low that we'd probably pay it off before we hit that point. So that's another thing. How long are you going to hold your mortgage for? Just some additional thoughts. Not to mention, you go 10% down, do some improvements, you can apply to get rid of your PMI payment. It's not real easy, but it can be done. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is John, North Carolina. Just uh, was wondering if... Uh you have any recommendations for growing either herbs or edibles in the drainage field of a septic tank? Uh, now, obviously, you wouldn't want to grow trees because the roots could do damage, but we're wondering if there were any safety concerns with uh, food or herbs that may be pulling up something from the septic field that might be uh, a health hazard or something of that nature. Um, love the show. Uh, appreciate uh, all you're doing for the community. The official answer is don't grow anything that will make contact with the ground in a leach field that you're going to eat. So, you know, melons and herbs and stuff like that to make ground contact, you're not supposed to do it. Odds are you'd probably be okay, but you're not supposed to do it, so I'm going to tell you not to do it. What I would tell you you could do is grow shallow-rooted uh, bushes, shrubs, or trees. So I don't mean go there and plant a chestnut tree. That would be a bad idea because, uh, like you said, you get roots into the down into the deep into the drain field itself and cause problems. But things like mini dwarf trees would would do just fine. They have very small root systems. That's part of what uh, what what creates the dwarf effect. So anything that's kind of like a perennial shrub, very small tree, something like that that grows up, that the fruit is up in the branches, you would have to pick it and doesn't make contact with the ground would be the good way to go if you wanted to. Grow grow something in that environment. Anything that makes contact with the ground there should be considered contaminated and not for human consumption. Even though most likely it's not going to be an issue, especially if you wash your stuff, it's it's just it's just like it's a bad practice, so to speak, and it has inherent health risks that you should avoid. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey Jack, this is Travis from Wisconsin again. Um, I got a tree that went down last year in a storm, and I've been trying to get rid of the stump. I've been burning on it and stuff. Now that I've got it pretty low, could I just build a raised bed around it, and wouldn't it become culture eventually? Um, it's, it's an old pine tree. That's all I'm really wondering about. Thanks a lot. Bye. The answer is absolutely yes. In fact, I don't remember the name of the grower, but there was one grower that Paul Wheaton referenced in Japan that would specific, specifically plant catalpa trees because they grow so large so fast, let them grow to a certain size, harvest them, take the timber, and then plant into the pile stuff up on the stumps and plant into the stump and root system as hugaculture. So it's, it's certainly not without precedent. Um, I don't know if you've done anything by burning it that maybe might be an issue, but it shouldn't. Uh, but you, what you want to do is pile an awful lot of humus and or organic material on top of that stump area and make sure you really put a deep, thick layer above it so that you'll definitely kill it and keep it from coppicing back on you. Uh, pine, is pine the best choice for this? No, but it'll work. And there's no reason not to. 
it would probably not be an idea to gather up a good pile of uh, wood, uh, stuff that maybe would be about firewood size, and completely cover the top of it with that as a second layer, and then put your organic matter humus soil on top of that. We're actually doing something very, very similar in our front yard. We have a place that we had a, I think it was like a scrub oak or something, that I, it came back, and I cut it down, and it came back, and I cut it down, and it came back, and I cut it, and I just kept doing it until it gave up, and it died. And now it's there, and it's this big, massive, shrub-like root system, and we've piled a bunch of, Uh, just wood from around the property from clearing and stuff like that. And we're going to plant strawberries and some other things into it. So absolutely, you can do it. Absolutely, it works. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Sean from Little Rock. Um, lately, I've been trying to read through the Constitution once a month. And I was wondering if you could maybe do an audio version of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And that way I could listen to them through audio and I wouldn't have to read it and I could listen to it more often. That would be great. Um, you know, and if you could commentate a little bit on it, maybe turning some of the 18th century language into the 21st century, I would love it. I think it'd be a great resource for the TSC community. Um, so if we could, you know, just have an audio version of that and you could do it for a show, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's uh, Sean Hipskin of Hipskin Activating, and uh, of course there's videos of Sean uh, basically using a, uh, a track hoe uh, with the skill of a surgeon as he helped me put in my hygge culture bed. So, Sean, thanks for calling in. Um, also want to throw out a little quick thing here. Uh, Sean's wife, Denise, was on Wheel of Fortune, and she killed it. So congrats to those guys, for, uh, or to Denise, I should say, for that. It was awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, we still have it on our DVR, so it's cool that you guys are so close to us and we've met you and we got to see uh, Denise get on that show and kill it. Uh, on the question, I don't know. I mean, I, I can see myself doing an audio version of the Declaration. I I think that might be kind of cool. The Constitution, I don't know if I'd want to listen to it in audio if James Earl Jones or uh, what's his name, Morgan Freeman were doing it or something like that, let alone me. Um, if there's interest, I would consider doing it. I could definitely do a show on the Constitution, breaking down certain components of it, but I don't know that I am the right guy to read a legal document and make it exciting. Um, I think there's parts of the Constitution that are so uh, inspiring. And I think there's other parts of it that are like, it's good to know, but you, it's not eloquent poetry the way that the Declaration is. When you read the Declaration, you can feel something. And, and I think the Constitution has parts like that, but the whole thing doesn't, you know, do that. And there's, you know, separation of powers and it's more legalese because that's what it is. It's a legal document establishing our foundation of our law. And I don't know how well it plays out in audio. Does anybody know maybe of somebody that's already done it? And I can point people to that as a recommendation. But if you'd like that, uh, I think that it would be, uh, you know, let me know. And if there's enough demand, I'll do it. I'm almost sold already on doing a declaration in audio and then maybe doing a show where it leads off with the Declaration of Independence and then we talk about it because that wouldn't take that much time. It's not that long of a document to read. The Constitution, I'm afraid if I put all the time and effort into doing that, and in many ways it might put people to sleep. Maybe we could do a well. Here's a compromise. Then maybe we, if somebody's if people are interested in this, maybe we do it. Maybe we could do a constitutional series where I read in one show a week a piece of the Constitution, give commentary on it, and then do the rest of the show. 
so that maybe it takes up 10 minutes of one show a week until we get the whole thing done. I think that might be a better way to do it. Love to hear from the audience on your thoughts on that. On the Constitution, though, Hillsdale College offers an entire course for free on the Constitution, and it's something I recommend that everybody takes. When you take the course, you get to watch lectures from the same Hillsdale faculty who teach on their campus. You study the same readings taught in the college course that they have on this. You can submit questions for weekly Q&A sessions with the faculty. Uh, you get access to the course study guide. You get to test your knowledge with weekly quizzes. And upon completion of the course, you receive a t certificate from Hillsdale College. And that's free. And you'll get to know the foundational law of your country Uh, better than you probably ever have before. And if you're concerned with making sure that the clowns are following the Constitution, you got to know the Constitution. And what I kind of like to finish up with today is what political conversations used to be like whenever they wanted to do something in Washington in this country. Before people discussed, should we do this? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Who does it cost? How much does it cost? Who does it benefit? Who does it take from? What does it infringe upon? Etc. All great questions. Before any of that, before any of the stuff the talking heads on CNN, the MSNBC, and Fox News, and all those people, before they talk about any of the crap you have on there, two people that were diametrically opposed on the idea itself would first have a conversation that started like this. Can they do this? Do they have the right to do this? Does the Constitution say they can do this? And if the answer is no, then either we're looking at a constitutional amendment process, which takes an awful lot of work and is a very serious endeavor, or they don't get to do it. That's what we need to bring back. We need to come back to a point where when the federal government wants to do something, the very first question of every citizen and every member of the House and every member of the Senate is, does the authority exist to do this constitutionally? If they had done that with the health care bill, it wouldn't even be a problem right now because the answer is no. And I believe we're going to hear from the Supreme Court on that very, very soon. Uh, with that, again... You can't hold their feet to the fire. You can't know that it's in violation of your Constitution if you don't know your Constitution. So I don't know whether I should read it to you or not, but I definitely think you should read it for yourself. I definitely think that you should get on over to Hillsdale and take advantage of that amazing opportunity. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you.